Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 3, Chapter 5 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 3, read by Baird Brucher. Chapter 5. Rome. The journey over the Alps gave me some distraction. The mighty hills never end, covered in broad meadows and silver streams, crested with dense, spirit-filled woods, until they rise to the sheer, rocky, snowy heights above where trees can grow. As we ascended, a cloud enveloped us. Yes, we had walked into the clouds. At one height, when there should have been a magnificent view, the water droplets coated us, and the view came in fragments as the clouds parted here and there. Here a meadow below, there a grove of trees by a stream. I thought, that is the human view of things, to see only in fragments. We do not have God's view. It was only on our descent that the clouds did part, and suddenly a forest of mountains broke through the sky in all directions in dizzying splendor. I tried to forget my sadness, but it can never be entirely healed. There was some amusement on this journey, though we stayed at times on the estates of grand bishops before we reached the Alps. Isaac nudged me and said, Pretend you are my secretary. You'll see some fun. I followed Isaac to the antechamber of the bishop's room, where the bishop sat on a velvet throne surrounded by men who could have been deacons or courtiers. Isaac made a simple bow and gestured to me to bring him a small box he'd set on a table. He took a few steps toward the bishop, knelt, and opened the box. I expected him to take out a gold ring or an amulet of ivory. Slowly, he held up a dead mouse, preserved with spices and painted with red dye. I have come from the Orient with this rare object, he said, with a voice to inspire wonder. It is a mummy, a rare specimen, preserved with exotic spices. This rare pet belonged to the most ancient emperor of Egypt, who preserved their bodies and pets in this way. This rare animal led a pampered life and in death is dusted with the powder of crushed rubies. It is an amulet against betrayal and jealousy. Its owner will be blessed with the serenity of kings. The bishop's eyes were wide. He licked his lower lip and stretched his fingers toward the dangling mouse. Isaac held it just out of his reach. I will give you a pound of silver for it, the bishop said, breathlessly. Isaac's eyes popped in his face. A pound? That doesn't even pay for my trouble. I have traveled five hundred miles. I could hear the bishop swallow a big gulp of greedy saliva. Six pounds of silver. Six pounds. I should throw it into the sea rather than let it go at such a price. The bishop winced. His breath came in short gasps, 
The loss of such a prize was too painful to bear. A measure of silver, a full measure. Isaac relaxed into a smile. Truly, that is a bargain. But you are a powerful man of your church, and I am humbly glad to offer you such a bargain. He dropped the mouse back into the box and closed it. Then he stood and walked to the bishop and presented him the box with a deep bow. That night at dinner, another feast. Carl tapped his knife against his silver cup and got the attention of the room. I understand our great host has acquired a fabulous token to show all the world his prestige. His vow of property did not prevent him from paying a measure of silver for this wondrous object. The king had the silver box beside him and he stood, dangling the stuffed mouse from his fingers. The table roared with laughter and the bishop's face burned red in shame. We stopped several nights on our journey at Bishop's estates, and Isaac and the king played the mouse trick every time. The court laughed harder each time, and never tired of it as we made our way to Rome. Rome is a dark city, smoky, a city falling in on itself. Though it is a large city, larger than X, it has clearly been larger in the past and its depopulation has turned its grand, mighty buildings into crumbling shells. Gorgeous fountains no longer flow with water. Marble columns hold up roofless temples. Walls repaired with rough brick are stained with the soot of open fires. I saw a man tear the arms off the lovely white statue of a pagan goddess and cast them into the lime furnace. Everywhere something was being burned or melted, and whereas X is a city in a state of construction, Rome is in a state of demolition. How far the mighty have fallen. It was a sickly warmish, though winter was coming. There is a prodigious amount of rats. The lack of a bracing winter means the city can't be rid of a certain pestilence. Bishop Arno tried to point out to me the newly restored churches, paid for by recent popes and especially Karl, but I see only the poor remains of its former glory. But when we arrived at mighty St. Peter's, it did give me hope for the power of the church. A fifth of Rome's population can fit inside, and there are as many golden and red marble pillars as there are monks on Iona. The pillars made me think of the standing stones at Kilmartin, stone raised by the faithful for their god. In the vast hall, the monks' choir voices echoed like a thousand reeds on the marsh of a summer's night. There was one distraction for me. A great mosaic over the altar shows Constantine and St. Peter presenting a model of this church to Christ. And I thought, in that model is a mosaic of the saints presenting a model to Christ, and in that model is the same mosaic, and on and on, and I didn't know how it can end. I pondered it a while, until I felt too stupid to think about it any more. The Romans, who had behaved treacherously to Pope Leo, cowered in their homes at our arrival. But Karl's soldiers forced them out. They were frightened at the Pope's recovery, 
a kind of trial was assembled and the Pope defended himself against the charges of corruption that had led to his overthrow. Some of his accusers were stricken mad at the awesome sight of Karl holding court in the church. Others were arrested for treason against the church. And Pope Leo was restored. Most of Rome pretended they had never conspired against him. And in the end, there was a general celebration. When we entered Italy, we stopped at the monastery of Bobbio, where we picked up two monks who had become my companions. Landfred and Sigismund wanted to bring back relics from Rome. So we searched about for a dealer in such things. We explored the city while Darek prayed all day. Isaac was very busy with his trade and left us to find what we needed for ourselves. I was still looking for the lapis as well. My companion's innocent enthusiasm only reminded me of the world's deceitfulness. We found our way to a little church that we heard had relics to trade. I was not encouraged by the dark, dirty street we walked down. Across the street, a woman leaned out of a window and waved to us. My companions didn't notice, but I noticed every broken window, dirty child, and hungry dog that followed us. The priest met us at the back door of his humble room that joined the church. In the dark street, it was a little velvet-lined jewel box. There was a couch with deep cushions, a gleaming table, and an inlaid chest. Red curtains hung over the passage to the church. We sat on a bench, feeling too humble for the couch, and he took a silver box from the chest. He waved his pudgy hand over the box to reveal a bone with a nail through it. This is the crucified wrist of St. James. The monks beamed. Oh, glorious! May we touch it? They picked it up and looked at it in rapture. I had my suspicions. The bone looked too thick to be a wrist bone. This looked like an ox bone. The priest caught my eye and must have read my face. We Christians must have faith and trust each other, he said. I am putting my trust in you by inviting you in. Of course, said Brother Sigmund. How much is it? I knew I would not dissuade them. I wish he had offered a small amount rather than ask how much. It is very precious, because you are holy men. I ask only eight deniers. The monks looked at each other. I knew we each had three deniers, and I didn't offer them mine. We were hoping to get more than one relic, said Brother Landfred. Ah, well, we might be able to strike a bargain. Don't be anxious. I interrupted. I didn't want to watch. Do you know where I might be able to obtain lapis for painting? The priest put a pudgy finger to his badly shaved chin. I have none, but I believe there is a woman named Felicia across the street who trades in minerals from time to time. I send my boy to take you. He picked up a little bell and rang it. In a moment, a boy stepped through the curtains. Take the good brother over to Felicia. The boy bowed and led me down the alley to a staircase and we went up. He knocked what seemed like a special knock. Two quick taps, a pause, 
and another tap. The door opened. Inside, four men sat around a table throwing dice. A woman stood over them, pouring wine into their cups. She was young but worn out, looking older than her years, I could tell, thin, with lines around her large brown eyes. She wore a blue silk dress and a clean white veil. The boy said, This is Brother Kellogg from Scotia, seeking lapis, Madame Felicia. I didn't know how the boy knew everything about me, but I was not entirely surprised. It was the business of the priest, the dealers of Roman relics, the purveyors of wanted items, to know all, for their advantage. She gave me a small, modest smile that had a touch of mourning to it. She set down her jug. I'm sorry, I don't have lapis, but I expect it soon. Is there anything else I can provide you with? Vermilion? Or piment? She opened the drawer of a high chest. Minerals were neatly arrayed, some in glass jars, some in clay, most still in rock form. The lapis is all I require. If you were to give me a down payment, I could make sure you were the first to get it. How much would it be in total? Five deniers. It's too much especially as my companions are spending what they have on your friend's relic of a nail through an oxbone. She smiled mournfully again. Friend is a strong word. I understand. He makes us honest traders look bad, and he annoys me because of it. I can see you're irritated. Sit down and take a little wine. I felt a little ashamed for my attitude, so I sat away from the gamblers and had a cup. She sat on a low stool beside me, and I looked down on her. She seemed so small and young, though also old beyond her years. If your friends are cheated, I will arrange a trade for an honest relic, she said. Why? Something should not be trivialized that way. I am a Christian too. Have you seen the sights yet? She asked. I've seen a filthy, grasping city. Meet me tomorrow, after the Mass at St. Peter's. I'll give you and your companions a tour. You can't come all this way and miss the holy places. I finished my drink. You are very kind. I must return to my friends now. Perhaps we will see you tomorrow. I hope so. She rang her own little bell, and the boy returned to accompany me to the priest, and we returned to our lodgings. I was further cheered to see the brothers were as yet empty-handed. The next day was sunny, and my mood continued to lift. We spent the day touring the sights with Felicia. I had to admit that in this dirty and crumbling city, there were monumental sights and beautiful carvings and statues. It was a bit strange, the former glory of the city visible through its sooty surface like a ghost or a dream. My favourite place and a source of astonishment was the Pantheon. It was one of the few ancient buildings mostly intact. I stood under the bright oculus of the dome, staring up in wonder. The coffered ceiling was so uniform and stunning in its simplicity, leading to that circle opening to the sky. I sometimes went and stayed all day just to watch the sun move and the shadows change around the interior. Other times, if it rained, I stood under it, 
and let the shower cleanse me of sin. For I was soon a terrible sinner. At times, Derek joined us. He had spent some time acquiring knowledge of the proper Roman chant to teach our brothers on our return. The monks of Scotia and Britain were eager to learn the proper way. On our outings, Derek stared hard at any carving of the Madonna and child lost in his concentration. He spoke little. He was our shadow, and he felt to me like the shadowy spirit of Rome's former might. Felicia took us to the prison where St. Paul was martyred and the Colosseum, where so many good Christians met their terrible deaths. She asked me about the saints of Scotia and listened attentively about Bridget and Kevin, Brendan, and others. Once in a while, Derek muttered a saint's name, a few words about their story, trailing off, his voice melting in the smoky air. I accompanied Felicia back to her dwelling after a tour we took alone one day. I told her I was in a quandary about the fact that a monk was not to be alone with a woman. We are in public. We are certainly not alone together. And you strike me as independent and not one or two fuss over small rules, she said. Surely a Christian man would not allow me to walk the streets alone. She had a point, and we made our way in the lengthening shadows of the short winter's day, chatting about Rome's history. We were chuckling over some witticism I had pleased her with when we stepped inside. She gave a little cry. The furniture was upended, and the drawers of the chest hung open, empty. She ran around the room and looked in every drawer and box. All her treasures were gone. She sat on the edge of her bed and cried into her hands. These are only things, I said, thinking to comfort her. Things aren't so important. Money is not so important. She wiped her cheeks and spoke in a dry voice. This isn't the country where women can grow their food. This is the city. In the city, money is a necessity. I've lost all my trade. How will I live? How will I eat? I took out my three deniers and pressed them into her hand. I can't take it, she said. You are kind, but I won't beg. Felicia leaned over and put her head on my shoulder. I put my arm around her. She pressed herself against me. It's frightening to be a woman alone. Her face was close to mine. Don't be afraid, I said, feeling that she saw me as a man, a protective man. I kissed her cheek. She pressed her cheek into mine. I could smell roses. I held her in my arms, and then, to my shame, I kissed her lips. To my shame, we fell across the bed, and I did shameful things. And it wasn't even dark yet. I could see her rosy face, and somehow it was all less secret and more shameful for that. Afterward, we lay in each other's arms, and she told me of her dead husband and her difficult struggle until she had established her trade. She was ashamed of some of her life, and she had made a vow to be a good Christian. I listened and fell in love. She was so sweet and strong. There was a pause, and I wanted to ask her many questions that I dared not ask. Then she said, There is a way I can recover. When I started out, 
I would have gambling. As you saw, men still like to come here to gamble. They trust me. They'll trust you. Then she unveiled her scheme. To use my innocent face to lure men to gamble and take a percentage of what I would win by cheating. She knew all the ways to cheat at gambling. It's a not moral, but it would be better than... 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 And a tear fell down her cheek. I held her closely. All right. I'll do it. Just for a few days. She gave me her mournful smile again. We have an expression here. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. We had arrived late in the year, and by Christmas Rome had settled down from that scandal with the Pope. The great basilica was crowded early on Christmas morning, its mosaics and gold altar glittered, and the scarlet robes of the cardinals glowed behind Pope Leo. His vestments were embroidered with silver thread. Everything gleamed and shimmered by the light of a hundred candles. Even the court of Karl Rex was not as magnificent. The chorus of acolytes that chanted the service echoed like a storm of angels. It was a communion service. I felt a thrill to receive the host from the Pope himself. The ragged public lined up for it, and the Pope blessed them. All was forgiven. I had had a bad impression of Rome in general, but now as this holy mass proceeded, the shining church, the booming chant rising to the rafters, the benevolent scarred face of the Pope in his white and silver angelic clothes lifted my spirits. Everything was clean again. Carl humbly stood last in line after the unwashed poor. The crowd gave way as he knelt alone at the altar, everyone jostling to see the great King of Christendom receive the host. Somewhere behind the altar a small bell was struck, a delicate tinkle that managed to sound above the rest. And somehow, by some sleight of hand, the Pope was no longer holding up the host. In his hands was a golden crown. I bless you, holy emperor of the Romans, he said in Latin. He placed the crown on Karl's head. The music swelled to a crescendo as a dull roar rose from the crowd. Karl stood and stiffly walked back through the crowd. Everyone wanted to touch him as he passed. I left in wonder. What did it mean? With my companions, we later discussed this turn of events. We thought it spoke of the great power of Pope Leo, that he could declare a man an emperor. This cemented his place as being above a mere king or earthly ruler. I went to bed satisfied with this thought. We also heard that Carl was telling people he never would have gone to the service if he'd known what Leo had planned. The next morning my head ached, as the ale had flowed the night before. I was about to go out to a bath when Isaac surprised me at my door. I was supposed to give you this today. I was to save it. I'm sorry, as I have a feeling it would be bittersweet for you. It was a letter with a red seal. I invited him in while I read it. Small, careful letters greeted me, only the second letter I had ever received. My dearest brother, Kellogg, if you read this now, then I am passed on to the glory of heaven, yet live a while longer in this letter. 
How wondrous learning is, that our words can defy death. This token must mean more than a lock of hair or a ring which cannot speak. I have your poem, which speaks to me so beautifully, and I have Gisela read it to me every day. You were right, and I didn't anticipate my daily cares and duties that have kept me from you. I had hoped there would be time, but time is slipping away. I hope you are in Rome, and I instructed this to be given to you there. On the day of our Lord's birth, our great king has been crowned emperor. It will seem a great surprise, and a triumph of both men, but especially of papal power that can declare a man king of the world, over the Greeks of Constantinople, over any dukes and nobles that rival him in Francia or Italy, over as yet unconquered pagans in the wilderness between east and west, and thus the church holds that power over him, to be able to grant him that power as an instrument of God. Karl is doubtless complaining and assuming modesty and saying he didn't want this high and possibly dubious honour. You should know the truth. It was all arranged at Paderborn. Karl required this of the Pope in return for his support. Karl has placed Leo in the Holy See, and both men have spurned permission from Constantinople for anything. Both men are the highest of the high. But it was Karl's will that he should be declared emperor, and his might that makes Pope Leo. Perhaps I tell you this out of spite. But no, for I know truth is your highest value, and as you search out the world looking for the truth of how things work, you must know this. I know wherever this truth leads you. However it hurts, it is better than not knowing. I bitterly regret our arguments, which began in enjoyable debate. I never meant our sparring to divide us, the debate soured as wine turns into vinegar. No one should hold a philosophy above friendship. Know that I love you, dear little brother, teacher, confessor, and confidant. I would not live to see your smiling face or hear your teasing words. I forgive you anything, if any forgiveness is required, and I pray you forgive me as well. Pray for my soul. God keep you and bless you on your long journey. There is no more to say. With love in my heart, Lutgard, Queen of Francia. Isaac put his arm around me. I leaned against him, my head pounding. Why is a letter always such a terrible thing? I asked. Still, it is a wonderful thing to have her voice again. I nodded, while silent tears slipped from my eyes. By day, I learned the arts of dice and knucklebones, by night gambled with vagabonds and pilgrims. I lost some of the time, enough that no one noticed that I won more than I lost. Slowly, we accumulated coins, and on days that I wasn't with her, my brothers and I shopped in the city for more relics. I didn't rush to buy, for I wanted us to find something truly special. At last we found a shop by the Colosseum, where we returned and scratched our names on the wall, and a tiny, wiry little Syrian with a long grey beard sold us a silver box 
containing the tooth of Clement. At night, after gambling, Felicia and I ate feasts of roast chicken with olives and lemons, which I grew very fond of. Felicia didn't always have me come to gamble. She said she didn't want to arouse suspicions. As the weeks wore on, her putting me off became more frequent, and I wondered jealously what she might be doing. I still lay with her many nights, to my shame. But in time, she started to pick quarrels with me, and I was puzzled by her change. One morning, early, when it was still dark out, Brother Lanfred arrived at our room at the Scots Inn. I wasn't aware he had been slipping out at night, because after my own prowls, I slept heavily. He whispered my name, and I was wide awake. I sat up, and he sat beside me. I need advice. His voice was heavy. He had been drinking. The drink was wearing off, but he was tired and sluggish. What is it? This poor woman, a dear friend I've met, you remember her, she showed us around that day. Uh, she has been robbed of her carefully gathered treasures. She is a shopkeeper, dealing in various things, including inks and paints. I, I sought to surprise you by getting the lapis. We returned from praying in the church, and her place was ransacked. The intruder must have just left. I went cold. Go on. Now she has asked me a favor. No, favor is too kind a word. She has asked me, begged me, to help her cheat people in order to win back the money to replace her merchandise. She says my innocent face and monk's robes will fool people. I do feel for her, but it will be a crime and a sin. She cried piteously. What shall I do? He slumped over and lay across my bed. I pulled him up and doused him with a pitcher of water. You will do nothing, and never see this sinful woman again. I threw on my shoes and robe and ran outside. By then I knew the dark, damp streets well. A thin black cat ran by with a rat in its maw. The dirty windows leaked soot through their cracks. A sick man groaned in pain from behind a door. The brick and crumbling marble of the city was cold and frosted. I got to her door and stood before it. I could leave without seeing her, never see her again. My use was over. And what use was she to me? Why had I let her seduce me? But it was not she that seduced me. She was not to blame for my sin. I should leave and make confession, expiate my wrongs and sin no more. There was forgiveness for me, and for her too, if she cared. But I was still angry. Perhaps in pride I had felt that it should be my decision to break it off, when I felt like it, and here she was set to replace me without a word. Did I think I was special? I must have felt something like that. I felt the anger of wounded pride. And despite what she was, I cared for her in my lonely state. Rome especially was lonely in its decay. In the bareness of its past glory now stripped and mouldered and empty, and she was all Rome had to offer me. When I entered her house, she was straightening the place from its ransacked condition, pushing on drawers and writing chests. She looked displeased to see me, and concentrated on her tasks. I know about Lanfred. He is my friend. I don't know what you mean. I took her by the shoulders, and she knew better than to oppose me. 
and when she gazed in my eyes, hers were hard and cold. I won't let you corrupt him, too. He truly is innocent. More than you, she said, and I knew to my relief she hadn't lain with him. She shook her head, and a small, cruel smile formed at the corners of her mouth. What did you think? What did you really think? she asked. That you cared for me? There was a short laugh, but on seeing my face she stopped herself. I can't afford to care. This is Rome. This isn't a backwater farm or monastery. Why? Did you think you were going to be married? You, a child monk? I let go of her and sat down on the chest. Of course not. I only wanted to believe you cared, nothing more or less. Her face softened for a moment. For a moment, there was a look on her face that was affectionate and a little rueful, and I thought she allowed herself a moment of regret for living as she did. She poured us each a cup of wine, and we drank in silence. The silence and the way we shared it mattered more to me than any words she could have said. It's time for you to go, she said when the wine was gone. Thank you, I said not sure of what I was thanking her for, and I left. I was through with Rome. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Stream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousstream.com. Thanks for listening.